Okay, we are going to look at the resurrection today. I spoke uh, just this this past weekend at um, at Crusade, and so I'll do something a little bit different uh, from what I did this Friday at the Crusade meeting. But we're going to start, and we're going to pick it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if in fact you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me as to one untimely born. He, he appeared to me also. Now I'm going to skip down to verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith also is in vain. And then skipping down to verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Okay, so Jesus says, so this, Paul has written that, that Jesus has risen from the dead. It is the most important thing about our faith, the most important thing in Christianity, is that Jesus has risen from the dead. And he says, I'm telling you this, and not only this, he says that there is a way to believe in vain. That's what he says. He says, unless you believed in vain. So there is something that you can believe that is vain. And he goes on to say, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith also is in vain. So you can have, I could have, faith that is in in vain, if Christ is not risen from the dead. And then he goes on to say, if Christ has not risen, if, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. So isn't that interesting that, that our faith can be deemed worthless, according to the Scriptures, if we don't take hold of the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. And in Romans chapter 10, Verse nine, Romans chapter 9, verses, verses 9 and 10. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. It says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, you will be saved. So it's not enough just to confess that Jesus is Lord. We must believe that He's been raised from the dead in order to have salvation. It is not enough just to believe that He's Lord and be willing to confess that. We must also believe that He's been raised from the dead. He puts that within the context, very much within the context of salvation. Believing that Jesus is Lord, willing to confess it, and that He's raised from the dead. So that's the basis on, on, on which He puts it before us. And now what I want to do is, is go through something that I did last year in the crusade meeting, but I never did it in this class before. 
And that is, if the resurrection had been faked, what would it have been like? And if you think about the history of this, it just, there's this argument against, against this ever having been faked. Let me read to you something from uh, Will Durant. Will Durant wrote something called The Story of Civilization. And it's, this, it's, it's just volumes and volumes of, of the story of civilization. It goes from the dawn of recorded human history right up on, on through to uh, the 20th century. And, and uh, Will Durant was an agnostic Jew. And he died in, uh, uh, he was born in the 1800s and died in 1981. But one of the volumes is called Caesar and Christ, because they lived at, at the same time period. And this is what he says concerning the Gospels. He says, quote, that a few simple men should have invented so powerful and appealing a personality, so lofty an ethic and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood, would be more a miracle, would be a miracle far more incredible than any recorded in the Gospels. After two centuries of higher criticism, the, outline, the outlines of the life, character, and teaching of Christ remain reasonably clear and constitute the most fascinating feature in the history of Western man. So here is an historian who looks at the Gospels and says that they could not have conceived of this story. Now, many people who are untrained, who know very little about how history is recorded, will say, oh, the Gospels have been fabricated. And, and they'll make comments, oh, the Gospels are, 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 are full of, of um, contradictions. I say full of contradictions. They say yes. I say, okay, share with me three. It's just full of contradictions. They say, okay, since it's full of them, let's just pare it down to three. Share with me three contradictions. And they can't even share with me one. Because they're not historians and they know absolutely nothing and they are projecting that very well. So what this great historian says is, these men could not have fabricated it. Couldn't be done. And so why is that? Why might it not have been fabricated? Because if you're going to fabricate something like this, what you do is you wait some time period before publishing an account of it. In other words, you wait hundreds of years after an event, you say the event occurred, before you start to fabricate something, because there's too many people around who know the story. But on the day of Pentecost, which is 50 days after the resurrection, Peter stood up and started to go through the accounts of the resurrection. Fifty days afterwards. So all the people who were around during the resurrection were still there. And he started to give an account. There was no waiting period. So it traces back to a very early origin. If this was a fabrication, it never would have been talked about early on. Because there's too many people who would have known. The other thing is, you publish the accounts of this far from the venue in which it took place. So you don't generally go right to the city, right to the location where it happened, and to start to say, start to build up some fabrication, because people are like, no, I was right here at that time. And that's not what happened. And so when you want to fabricate a lie, you say, well, in a far, far away land, something happened. Far away. 
you start to build this story about how it occurred, how it happened. This is what you begin to do. You don't do it right in the city in which it took place. And then he says, you know, the grave is right over there. That's where the grave is. In that garden, there's the tomb. Exactly where it took place, he's making reference to. This is not how a fabrication is done. And so this is what the historian does. He looks at this and he says, it would be the greatest miracle of all would be if these men, these mere men, could have fabricated this thing. Based on the history that he compiled, much of it from the Gospels and related literature, he said, this was no fabrication. And you say, well, why is the guy an agnostic Jew? I don't know. But it speaks more to say an agnostic Jew even confesses that this is the way it was. You also select witnesses very carefully. Very carefully do you select witnesses if you're going to fabricate something. But what happens is, as we read in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he goes through and he starts to name them. He says, he appeared first to Cephas. So Paul says he appeared first to Peter. Go ahead and ask him because... Uh, 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 Peter's other name was Cephas, so they had a Jewish name, they had a Gentile name, and, 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 and so you have Cephas, you have Peter, and so he says, Cephas, you can go ahead and ask him. Then he appeared to the twelve, so then he appeared to the twelve apostles, and you say, well, who were the twelve? Judas was already dead. Remember, Matthias was chosen, so Matthias had seen the Lord. Part of the choosing of, of apostleship had to be that they had to have the eyewitness account. Then he appeared to over 500 people at one time, some of whom have now died, because this account in 1 Corinthians is maybe 15 years after the event. He says, but a lot of them are still alive. Go ahead and ask them. But not only does Paul then begin to name the people, but even in the Gospels themselves, they are named. So you see in in John chapter 19, it starts naming some people very descriptive. It starts to name some people. John 19.38 says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted him permission. So he came and took away the body. Nicodemus, who had come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So, you see, he names two people. He names two people. He names Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, both of them being on the Sanhedrin. That is like us saying, okay, there are two witnesses, and they happen to be Supreme Court justices. That's the same thing. He was very specific about the witnesses. So if this was fabricated by the apostles, by the twelve apostles, why would the Scriptures name specifically two people? You want to check this thing out? Go ahead and ask these people. You want witnesses that you might believe hear their names specifically in the Gospel. God knows what He's doing when He puts together the Scriptures. These people are specifically named. And it's interesting, Joseph of Arimathea, that it, it says that he was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. Lest you, you say that, okay, there's one, I think I'll be a secret disciple. It says in John chapter 12, it says that many even of the Pharisees believed upon him, but they were not confessing him because of fear of the other Pharisees. 
because they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Okay, so lest you think that you can hide behind this fear of something, the scriptures tell us if we hide behind something, it's because we love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So, he names very specifically, you wouldn't do this if you were fabricating this account. You wouldn't name people very specifically. The other thing that we read is we, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and He appeared, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Well, why would He say He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve? Because in Mark, Mark chapter 16, Mark chapter 16, it actually tells us who Jesus really appeared to first. Mark chapter 16, verse 9 says, Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. So, uh uh-oh, you see, they fabricated something, they messed up here, because in one place he says he appeared to Cephas, the other place it says he appeared first to Mary. Well, what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians is he's setting up a legal argument to say this is what happened. He appeared to Cephas. Because remember, after he appeared to Mary, then, then there were appearances to other women, but the first man that he ever appeared to was indeed Peter, or Cephas. Paul never makes a reference to the appearance to Mary. And why? Because Mary had no legal standing. Either in Israel or in Rome, the word of a woman meant nothing. And you say, well, that's offensive. Well, too bad, get over it. That's a different generation. All right, there's going to be many things about this generation that you feel very good about. In future generations, they're going to find offensive and they're just going to have to get over it. They don't live in this generation. So it's something of the past. But a woman had no standing legally to confess of anything. It would be like trying to get information from the family pet as a description of the robber that came through the house. Which, which of these people in this lineup? is it that stole the jewelry from this house and the family pet? You're going to take the testimony of the family pet? That's what it was like. And that may bother you, but that's what it was like. The testimony meant nothing. Well, why then does the Gospel give an account that a woman saw Jesus first? And the Gospel gives the account because that's exactly the way it happened. The woman saw Jesus first. Jesus appeared first to Mary. But when Paul is giving a legal argument saying, here's the people you need to talk to if you worry about this, he doesn't even include them because he knows their testimony doesn't mean much. Their testimony has no legal standing. But as far as God is concerned, he'll appear to whoever he wants to because he doesn't care about the law. He's God. He has his own law and he appears to a woman first because she happened to be among the group that was there first to come and see him at the grave. Not to see him alive, but to, to get him anointed. So you see, if this were a fabrication, if the Gospels were fabricated, they never would have chosen a woman for Jesus to appear to first. I can tell you who he would have appeared to first. He would have appeared to the Apostles. He would have appeared to the writer of the Gospel first. Now Mark wasn't, wasn't among the original Apostles, but if... if, if uh, If it had been the apostles fabricating this, he would have appeared to them first. 
Because if I were fabricating something, I would love to be the one who first saw the Lord. That's how I would write it. This was not fabricated. It argues against fabrication. Then he goes on. And we would see that if we were fabricating this, this event, we would surround the event with supernatural displays. So when Jesus rose from the dead, nobody actually saw him walking out of the grave. No one saw him. The Gospel records it, that an angel, an angel rolled away the stone. There was an earthquake, and an angel rolled away the stone. But nobody saw it. There's no account that, oh, the apostles saw it. There's no account that, that, uh, um, that the, 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 uh, the guards saw it. There's no account that Mary saw it. She saw him after he had risen. But can you imagine if we're fabricating this? Why to leave that juicy part out? I was there. And a light shone from heaven. And Jesus came out transported by that light. You know, you do something to embellish this. I mean, this is the key part. Wouldn't you want to embellish this? And this is what you would do if it were fabricated. There was nobody there to see it. And it does say, it does say that, that uh, um, the guards, there were some guards there, and the guards, when they saw the angel, it says they froze and they became like dead men. They just, they froze stiff. You know, and, and, and we have that expression. So, in, in uh, Matthew 28, verse 13, the guards, when they returned to Jerusalem, they returned and, and um, they said, you know, uh, this guy we were supposed to guard his grave, uh, he's not in there anymore. And it says that when they had assembled the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews as it is to this day. So the guards came back and said, uh, we've got a problem here. Jesus is no longer there. And in fact, the, the scriptures talk about how they were sleeping. Scriptures talk about how they were sleeping. Scriptures also mention how they had seen an angel and been scared. But, um, so here it says, you are to say, his disciples came and stole him by night, stole him away while you were asleep. So the scriptures are saying that, hey, they're claiming that they were sleeping. And so they were told to say this. They were told to say this and say the disciples came and took him. But the problem with this whole lie is, if they were asleep, how do they know it was the disciples that took him? All right? So when you're asleep, you don't know who came in and took him. And so you see, what they try to do is they built a fabrication. And that's what happens when you build fabrications. They quickly get found out. But still, that rumor is there today. And you will hear people say, the guards were asleep and the disciples took him. Still, that rumor exists till today.
but there's, there's no substance there. And so, you, 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 the, the other thing is that bothers people is if you look at the four different accounts of the Gospels, you say, the resurrection story is different in each one. Actually, the res- resurrection story is not different in each one. You are wrong if you feel that. They look at it from a different perspective. And I covered this last year on Easter, Easter Sunday in my class. And you can, you can go back and grab that off the Internet. And we go over each of the four accounts and each of four of what they say. And you can easily piece together a scenario where all of them are accurate. If you have an, a car accident, a car accident occurs and there are witnesses standing on, on different corners, you have them describe what happened. It will always be a little bit different as to who came in first and what happened. It will always be different. And in fact, lawyers know this. They know this, that stories always should be a little bit different from different perspectives. And if stories are exactly the same, they speak of collusion. So if all four gospel accounts were exactly the same, it would speak of collusion. There is no way... You could have four different people recording an event, and some of these people, a lot of the the gospel writers, what they were doing is they were getting information from different sources and compiling this together. The only way it could be the same is if they're going, ah, what did you write? Okay. There's only way you can do that. Because when things are exactly the same, it speaks of collusion. I have found... I've found students cheating in my class because answers are exactly the same. But the beautiful thing about organic chemistry is there's one correct answer and there's a million wrong answers. And when the wrong answers are exactly the same, there's been collusion. I know it. When the wrong answers are exactly the same, somebody was copying off of someone else's paper. And generally you will see a molecule which can be written any which way They're actually all written at exactly the same angle. All the wrong answers, all the molecules happen to be written at exactly the same angle. So when stories are exactly the same, there is indeed collusion. There are good ways that you you can come up with several scenarios of the details of exactly what happened that are that fit the account of all four Gospels. And if you have trouble doing that, go and listen to my message and I piece that together for you. And I'm not the first to do that. Many, many people have done that. So that they are not exactly the same, again, speaks of their authenticity. Mark, in Mark 16, verse 11. Mark 16, verse 11. Look at what is written Mark 16, verse 11, it says, When they heard, that is the disciples, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, that's Mary, they refused to believe it. So when the disciples had heard that Jesus was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. Now, if you look in in Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, verse 11 says, but these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. So let me read verse 10, Luke 24, verse 10. Now, they were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, 
and Mary, the mother of James, also the other women with them, were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe it. So all these women come running back that the grave is empty, that the Lord has, has, has risen. And it says the disciples, when they heard it, it appeared as nonsense, and they would not believe it. The word of a woman was incredible. Women, you know, they just imagine all sorts of stuff. You know, this is what they were thinking. There's no credible evidence here. And remember, it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that 500 people saw him at one time. Remember that, that uh, uh, hallucinations are never shared, not even by two, let alone 500. If you're going to hallucinate, you're all alone in your, your hallucination. You really are. You can try to bring somebody into it and say, don't you see what I see? Oh, yeah, I think I see it. Hallucinations are not shared. 500 people saw him at one time. All these ladies come back saying that that, uh, uh, the Lord has arisen and they refused to believe it. They just didn't believe what was being said. There's no way that you would write this yourself. I'm telling you, if I were writing this and somebody came... Ah, yes, I heard that he had arisen, and certainly I believed it, because Jesus spoke often of his resurrection, and I believed every word of it. That's what I would write about myself. You always write yourself into a good light. I always do. You read anything about myself that I've ever written, and it's always good. It really is. I don't put in there all my failures. I might put a little bit just to you know, make people think I'm, I'm you know, being humble. But then I just, you know, supersede it with all this great stuff. That's the way I write about myself. And that's the way most people write about themselves. They would never write themselves with all this doubting. And you see them writing in in the Gospels. They record all of this where his disciples were doubting and Jesus had to reprove them. If you were making up this stuff, you wouldn't do that. There's this beautiful portion in the Scriptures that actually shows how people fabricate things about themselves, how they're able to do that, and it's even recorded in Scripture. So if you look in, in Acts chapter, chapter uh, 22, in Acts chapter 22, and we're going we're gonna to start reading this uh, at verse 22. Acts 22, 22. So Paul is, there's an account of when Paul is is speaking to a bunch of Jews. He says they listened to him up to this point, up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and they said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their coats and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that they might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. And the commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul answered, But I I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let let him go. And the commander 
also was afraid when he found out that he had put a Roman, that he was a Roman because he had put him in chains. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set them before them. So, this commander takes Paul and has him put in chains, even though he's a Roman citizen. You say, well, the poor guy didn't know. Actually, he did know. He just forgot. Because actually, back in Acts chapter 21, Paul had even told him, uh, verse 39, Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I, I beg you to allow me to speak. So, Paul had already said that he had been a Roman citizen. This commander probably for, had forgotten in all the commotion. But Paul was born in Tarsus, which is not in Italy. But remember, there were seven cities that were designated provinces of Rome. And if you were born in those cities, made you a Roman citizen. And Tarsus was one of them. So Paul is about to, is thrown into chains, being a Roman citizen, you were not allowed to put into chains a Roman citizen without a trial. Then he was about to be scourged, and that's when Paul speaks up again and says, "Uh, you sure you're allowed to keep me in chains and scourge me? I'm a Roman citizen. And the guy who's about to do it is like, gulp. And he goes to his commander and he says, "We, we got a problem here. This guy's a Roman citizen. And they come back and they're afraid. And so, even the centurion comes back and says to the commander, what are you about to do? He wanted no part of this. No part of it. Well, now the commander has to write a letter to the governor as he's sending Paul forward. And he writes this letter to the governor, and this is in Acts chapter 23, verse 25. He says, and as he wrote a letter, and it had this form, quote, Claudius Lysus, that's the name of this, this, this commander. Claudius Lysus, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council, and then he goes on how I bring him before you. So it wasn't actually a lie. He just didn't fill in all the details because he didn't want to look bad. This is how I write. This is how people write. Especially if they're going to fabricate something. If they're going to fabricate something, you don't make yourself look dumb. You make yourself look, oh, yes, of course I believe this. This is what you do. They would have written themselves in a good light, which they didn't, which speaks then to its authenticity. The other thing you do if you're going to make a fabrication is you try to squelch inquiry. You don't want people examining it. You know, if you've got something to hide, you know, if you're hiding something, you don't like people coming up and saying, now, tell me what happened again. Uh, what, what did you do? You're like, just leave me alone. Just get away from me. If you've got something to hide, you want to squelch inquiry. And so how do you do that with legends if you're going to build some fable here? What do you do? You surround it with omens. You go looking around that grave, it speaks to your unbelief. If you don't believe, your firstborn child will die. You surround it with some omen. What did he do? Paul says, go investigate this thing. Peter says, this grave right over here. Again and again, they say, investigate it all you want. There's no omens There's no curses put upon you for investigating. 
That's what you do when the whole thing is a lie. You see how this again and again speaks to authenticity. If Jesus' enemies had taken his body, they certainly would have produced the body with this growing religion that it started. But if the disciples had stolen the body, they never, never would have used the resurrection and repentance as a basis for having people come to faith. If I wanted to build a religion, why would I set the bar so high that if you come to this faith, you have to believe in the resurrection of a man. I mean, come on! That's too hard. I want to have a big following in my religion? I would never choose resurrection, something that had never happened before. Well, it had happened with Lazarus, but remember, Lazarus was about to die again. This man resurrected and then went up to heaven. I mean, come on, how... how how silly is this? Even with Lazarus. I mean, they can't believe this. You would never build it on this. And then repentance to say that I have to turn from all the stuff I really enjoy doing? I mean, this bar is set so high. If you're fabricating a religion just to have some following, you'd never do this. If you did it, you wouldn't have anybody following. The only reason people follow this is because it's true. Why wouldn't you just say, oh, you know, follow this man, Jesus. He loves children. He's good. And this is what you do if you want people to follow it. That there is this enormous bar set so high speaks to, again, its authenticity. Finally, I would die for what I believe. I would. And I think many of you would die for what you believe to be true. And it is not just Christians. Jews do the same thing. Muslims do the same thing. They die for what they believe to be true. I believe in the resurrection and I am willing to die for that belief. I believe it that strongly. I believe it to be a truth. But with the disciples, it was different. They did not believe it to be true. They knew it to be true. You see, if they had fabricated it, they would have known that it was a lie. And they never would have been willing to die for a lie. Nobody dies for a lie. You may tell a lie for, you, you know, for, for financial gain or something, but you don't die for a lie. So what they go through is different than what I go through. I'm willing to die for what I believe. They were dying for something they knew. Of, of the twelve, it is said some, some of the deaths of them are recorded. Of others, the deaths of them are only recorded in reliable church history. Two of them, well, Peter, it says, reliably, that he was crucified upside down. Two of them were flayed alive. Flayed alive means that you're tied down and your skin is cut off you. You are skinned while being alive. It's not a very pleasant death. You'd think that if it was a lie, they'd say, Ah, just kidding. Psych. Let me show you where the body is. You don't die for a lie. 
you die for something that you know to be true or something that you believe to be true. If this had been fabricated, it would have been a lie and they would have known it to be a lie. So it behooves us to do something with this. This is the resurrection in which we believe. We believe it because it is true. It is an historical event that was not fabricated, could not have been fabricated. And when historians study it, they say, this couldn't have been. It is too good. It is too perfect. And it would have been a greater miracle than anything accounted for in the Gospels had they been able to fabricate this. It's just too good. And we believe it because it is true. It is the foundation of our faith. And if you don't believe it, the Scriptures say your faith is vain and your faith is worthless. And that is what is before us. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the truth of the Scriptures. It is the Scriptures that bear witness to this truth. Thank You, Lord, that when this Word was compiled, it was written exactly like it took place. That Jesus rose from the grave, that He lives forever at Your right hand. Lord, thank You for this truth. May our faith never be in vain. Father, I pray for these young people that you just touch them by the power of God, that this would be the bedrock of their faith, that they would believe that indeed Jesus has risen from the dead so that they could be saved. Father, if there's ones here that don't know you, Father, I pray that the truth of the Scriptures itself, that the truth of the history would bear witness to their hearts, that they would get saved. Father, that they would get saved from the death that awaits them. For Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Father, thank you for that hope of eternal life. Draw them in, I pray. And I commit them to you. And thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.